Open your Bibles to Matthew, once again, coming back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been singing this morning some about the generosity of God. The word generosity itself has an interesting history. It comes from the same basic root as other words uh, such as genetics or generation, because its original meaning really had to do with your uh, uh, sort of hereditary line. The word generosity, if you go back hundreds of years ago, actually referred to the nobility of someone's birth. You were described as generous if you were born within certain families and within certain ranks of society. And that was a meaning for really a number of years, even as you progress into the 15th and 16th century in the English language you find the references of generosity simply to someone's rank and someone's birth. But of course, with that came certain associations, certain ideals. And particularly as you come into the Renaissance period, there was an attachment of, uh, of certain qualities of what a noble person should be. These were the these were the things in which they were molded through all of their education and all of society. They were molded to be a noble person, a generous person. It really wasn't until you get into the 18th and 19th century that the word generosity began to detach itself from rank in society and began to attach itself more closely to the quality of your character. You were considered to be a generous person if you had certain character qualities such as valor and courage and gentleness and reasonableness and fairness and strength. All of those things described a generous person, someone who had sort of a noble or, 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 or noble nature to their inner man. Of course, as, as we know, as we've entered into the 19th and 20th century, the word took a more focused uh, uh, meaning, if you will, to the idea of benevolence, the idea of giving the idea of unselfishness, but it wasn't detached from those original ideas because all of those things were in many ways considered to be the, the byproduct or all those character qualities were considered to be the source of this kind of benevolence, the source of this kind of unselfishness. It was thought that it would be this noble character, this commitment to to uh, uh, fairness and gentleness and thoughtfulness and all of those things which would actually produce in someone's life that sense of wanting to help others, wanting to give to their needs. The highest quality of character, in other words, was necessary to produce the, the, the most ready or the, uh, the greatest readiness to share, to give. Now, the reason I trace all that out is because when it comes to character, there's no one who has higher quality of character than God himself. God's holiness 
applies to his whole character. He is the most noble, the most pure, the most wise, the most gentle, the most fair, the most loving that you could ever conceive of. And if those are indeed the qualities out of which generosity flows, then it would be no surprise to us to consider the fact that God is the most generous of beings that you could ever imagine. He's the most giving, he's the most benevolent that you could ever frame in your mind. Which is exactly why the scripture consistently encourages us to think of God this way, not only to think of him this way, but to present our requests to God exactly because he is the most generous. And he is the most generous because he is the most noble of character. You really can't separate the two. You can't separate the idea of generosity from the idea of noble character. Someone who is ignoble in character and someone who is sort of uh, of low and uh, mean estate in their inner person is not someone who is eager or ready to part with their things and to give to others and to share. But when you find someone who truly has that distinction in their character and quality of their spirit, they are at the same time extremely generous. Now, it's unfortunate that this is not the way that many people think of God. They imagine Him quite differently. They think of Him as perhaps a bit miserly. Imagine that God might even enjoy watching them struggle at various times. Or at best, God is unconcerned with their struggle. He is indifferent to their pain. He is maybe more akin to the cold and heartless, aloof person Whether they are from noble birth or not, he is the kind of person who typically turns a deaf ear to those who are below their station and below their means. And this, of course, is most revealed in their prayer life. They're not thoroughly convinced that God is of such noble character, nor are they thoroughly convinced that God loves or even cares for them to that level. They don't really believe that he is hearing their prayers or understanding their fe- their feelings and their fears. And all of this manifests itself in a pretty inconsistent prayer life. Superficial, negligible, sparse time with God. It's not because their burdens are insignificant. It's not because the cares and concerns that they grapple with every day are insignificant. It's not because they don't feel challenges in their life or they don't have obstacles to overcome. But their hope and their faith in God do not match their sense of their problems because their belief in God's character hasn't been established. While officially they might in their doctrine uphold God's character or even his generosity, in practical terms, it really doesn't mean much to them on a daily basis. You don't want to admit it, but you really question if God's generous. 
you really question if he has that kind of noble character. If he really is that caring. You really question whether his character is all that more noble than perhaps your dearest friend who seems to be very concerned and very interested in your problems, who seems to be very burdened by what you're, go- what you're going through, who seems always ready to listen whenever you want to find an ear, who seems willing at least, if they're not able, to, to, to want to do something to help you, but you are doubtful whether God is equally burdened or equally interested That kind of doubt about God's character is then reflected in doubts about prayer. And those kinds of doubts about prayer are reflected in the lack of prayer. For some, it will be doubts about whether God really is intent on helping your material need. For others, your doubts focus on deeper issues, on spiritual issues. Struggles that you have, spiritual struggles, struggles with sin, struggles with temptation, struggles to overcome some pattern in your life, struggles even in relationships, and you're overcome with discouragement and you're overcome with doubt about whether the Lord even is concerned or whether he hears your prayers, whether he cares or whether he has any intent in helping Well, for all of those people and for all of those concerns, the Lord gives you this very direct word of encouragement in Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. Now, very simply, this is a passage about asking. It's a passage with very direct instruction for you to ask. And particularly, it's about confidence in asking. It's encouraging you to ask. Or, if you want to turn it around, you could say, it's really about doubting. It's about doubting whether you should ask. Or about doubting If you do ask if God would even care or if he would listen, it's about doubting whether he would give to you if you ask or doubting whether what he gives will be what you're asking for or whether it will be good or whether it will be harmful or disappointing or whatever it might be. And Jesus is telling you, he's assuring you, he's giving you the confidence, yes, very much God wants you to ask. He couldn't say it in more clear terms. He couldn't give more color and life to it. He very much wants you to know and to believe 
and to understand that he cares and that he wants you to bring your concerns to him and believe that he'll listen and believe that he will do something about it. In other words, God is generous. He is the most generous because he is of the highest character. He's of the highest quality. And when you need him, and when you come to him in need, he doesn't want you to ever doubt that he would be the most concerned person or the most concerned being that you could ever come to with those kinds of concerns and requests, those kinds of questions, those kinds of longings. So this is a question, or excuse me, this is a passage about dealing with doubts, or we might say it's a call to confidence in prayer, or a passage dealing with doubts in prayer, and particularly Jesus gives us here, I think, two keys for dealing with these kinds of doubts in your prayer. The first one in verses 7 through 8 is that we deal with doubts by recalling Christ's encouragement to endurance. We deal with doubts in our spiritual life, our prayer life, by simply recalling his repeated calls to us to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking. That's, in fact, the nature of these verbs. They are what we call present continuous verbs. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible does a good job, I think, of translating this when it translates it this way, keep asking and it will be given to you, keep searching and you will find, keep knocking and it will be open to you. You see, the Lord understands you. He understands your heart. He understands that you're easily discouraged. He understands that you will, from time to time, be filled with doubts. We don't always see the big picture. We don't always take into account all of the factors that might be at work in any given situation that we are facing. We can get very laser-focused and narrowly focused on a particular point of pain in our life. We can't account at all for all of those things. And so when we do not... Sometimes we can become quite impatient. We can imagine maybe out of a, a, an overworked fear that we need some need to be met in some sort of immediate fashion when that isn't necessarily always the best, most ideal. And so we wind up waiting sometimes. And in our wait, we worry. And in our worry, we doubt. And in our doubt, we drift. Remember, this whole, this whole discussion comes out of a context at the end of chapter 6 when Jesus was talking about anxieties. He was telling us that we need not worry about all of those kinds of details of life. The Lord looks out for us just like he looks out for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. The Lord, in other words, is very aware of the temptations that you face toward, toward worry and toward anxiety and toward fears and towards doubt. 
And so in light of all of that, he tells us that we need to keep on seeking. Don't give up. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Don't stop. And this is a something that you find repeatedly in Scripture. You find these kinds of either assurances or commands or even examples from godly saints. Luke 18.1, the Lord told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart, which he immediately follows with the story of a persistent widow who was always going to a judge day after day asking for some need to be met until finally she wore down the judge and he, he sort of caved in to her, compl- uh, to her complaint and gave her what she's asking for. And the Lord said, how much more will your father in heaven who loves you? In other words, if, a, if an unjust and uh, an insensitive judge is going to finally give in to that kind of persistent asking, how much more do you think your God in heaven, who already has promised his love to you, is going to listen? And you find that same kind of sentiment expressed everywhere, where it's just accentuated that we need to persist in these kinds of pursuits. In fact, some people think that Jesus is actually suggesting a kind of increased intensity here. You begin by asking that that, that eventually gives way to seeking. And then finally, you reach the point where you're pounding on the door, you're knocking. That's certainly possible with the uh, nature of the language here. But I think what really Jesus is doing here is he's giving us different terms to encompass the whole range of desires that we might have from time to time, particularly in light of the rest of the language of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus spoke about our prayer, the kind of prayer that God desires back in the what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And I'm A part of that, we were instructed to pray for God to give us this day our daily bread. So as it relates to our material needs, he's already taught us to ask God to give. And he implies that God will gladly respond to those kinds of prayers and he'll meet those needs. But that isn't the only kind of concern and desire that's expressed here. Because you remember that after talking about that prayer and after talking about those basic needs, that he then goes through the rest of the chapter reminding you that those aren't even where your heart should be focused. Your heart really ought to be focused not on those kinds of things which the Gentiles are seeking, he says. But instead, you should seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And trust that all those things will be added to you. In other words, he's already given us instruction not only about asking God to give. He's given us instruction about what to seek. So now he picks up that language about asking and about seeking. And maybe even knocking as it relates to what he will go on to say in the coming verses about the doorway that you enter into to find heaven. All of these things go beyond just the mere daily material struggles that you might have with paying this bill or putting food on the table 
this day. And they broaden the scope to a much wider vision of all of the spiritual, all of the deeper emotional needs that you and I have. And he's saying to you, don't stop seeking God. Don't stop knocking on the door. Don't stop trying to enter in. Don't stop asking God for his kind of of grace and help and provision in all of those needs. It doesn't matter if it's just sort of the asking for material needs. It doesn't matter if it's the seeking for spiritual help or the knocking or whatever it might be. Keep on seeking. Seeking kingdom priorities. Seeking righteousness. Seeking victory. Seeking deliverance. He captures all of those things, even the deep battles that touch our heart. And he's saying this is exactly the kind of prayer that you and I need to develop. In fact, this is exactly the kind of prayer that you see, as I said, throughout Scripture. You just read the psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So this has been the, the sort of dilemma for saints through all the ages. This temptation to want to stop asking and to want to stop seeking. Kind of a tug on your heart to stop in prayer. Psalm 31, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Psalm 71, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Psalm 86, verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day long. Psalm 130, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Psalm 54, hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. Psalm 55, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide your face from my supplications. Psalm 143, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications, answer me. In your faithfulness and in your righteousness, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. See, when you realize what prayer really is represented in the scripture you realize that this is a standard part of the experience of so many believers they go through dark seasons they go through seasons where they are tempted to stop asking and to stop seeking And to give up on prayer and to give up on God. All of these words come from men who came before God with struggles in their heart and they had not had their prayers answered yet. 
And there is a temptation to think that God may not listen. That he may not hear. And so there's, a, there's an urging on the part of Christ. A reminder to us. To not give up on that kind of persistence. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion writes one of the most helpful, practical, profound sections on prayer that you'll ever read in anything. In book three of that Institutes in his section on prayer, he says this, Therefore we see that to us nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not also bidden to ask of Him in prayers, he says. In other words, God's promised to us His grace, but in His divine wisdom and sovereignty, He has ordained that that grace is operative through prayer. I mean, you understand, God, God could just give. He could give and give and give without any prayer involved, but He has ordained that this becomes operative through prayer. Why is that? Well, part of the reason is because like everyone who's involved with giving, they find their greatest joy in giving through relationship. I mean, no one wants to give to a cold and stony recipient who is unconcerned or ungrateful. The Lord is so much more interested in developing relationship than He is in just sort of doling out indiscriminate gifts to people. Calvin goes on to say this, the fact that we lie on earth poor and famished and almost destitute of spiritual blessings while Christ sits in glory at the right hand of the Father clothed with the highest majesty of empire must be imputed to our slothfulness and narrowness of our faith. What Calvin is saying is essentially what the scripture puts in the most basic of terms, you have not because you ask not. The shortage is not in God's means or in His riches, and it's not even in His character. The shortage is in your faith, your proneness to give up so quickly, to doubt in God so readily. And these quotes, by the way, come from a man who isn't some sort of greed-driven, man-centered preacher. Calvin was one of the men who had the most profound sense of the glory of God as anyone who ever walked the face of this earth. And yet he understood that the fullest blessings of God are actually those blessings that he dispenses through the means of prayer. This is why men like Martin Lloyd-Jones say such things as this, quote, the 
holy boldness, excuse me, this holy boldness, speaking here of Matthew 7, this holy boldness, this argumentation, this reasoning, this putting the case before God, this pleading his own promises is the whole secret of prayer, he says. To see it in another verse, you could turn to Hebrews 4.16, which says, let us draw near with confidence, or some translations say boldness. Let us draw near with boldness to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the Scripture is constantly calling you to this kind of confidence and this kind of boldness for you to come before God. In fact, the word itself that's translated in Hebrews, boldness, literally means open. So it's talking about a kind of an openness, a kind of a frankness, a kind of a, a, a comfort level to say whatever you're thinking before God. To say whatever is on your mind, to be upfront, to go to God and to go without any shame for whatever burdens you might have with the confidence that he cares and that he wants to help. Paul says this same sort of thing in Ephesians 3.12. He was talking about his ministry, which he says was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom... We have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. As a matter of fact, over there in Ephesians, he goes on to talk about how this boldness and confidence affected him. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul says, I, I, I don't hesitate to expect and to hope the greatest spiritual blessings possible for you. You might be cowering and saying, man, I hear all that, but if you knew my situation, if you knew the struggle that I'm in, if you knew the kind of burdens that I'm facing and the kind of temptations that have overtaken me, if you knew the pressure cooker, if you knew the relationships, if you knew all of the twists and turns of what has entangled me. But Paul says, you know what, because of the grace of Christ, I have every confidence and boldness to ask that you would reach all the fullness of what God intends you to have in terms of sanctification. In fact, he's not even done because he goes on to say, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all We could ask or think according to the power 
at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. You see, that's, that's the mindset of someone who understands this call to bold and confident prayer. He understands exactly the character of God and the generosity of God. He understands exactly what God wants to do. And so it is essential, if we're going to overcome our doubts in prayer, it is essential that you remember the sort of simple and profound call of Christ to keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. And don't give up. Obviously, it raises the question, an obvious question, I think. Why? Why do we have to persist? Why doesn't God just answer immediately? Why, why does it seem at times that God makes my life so hard I want to do what he wants me to do. I want to obey him. I want to honor him. Why doesn't he just help me? Which leads Jesus to the second key in dealing with doubts in your prayer. We deal with doubts by pondering the perfections of God's character. You deal with doubts by pondering the perfections of God's character. Not just remembering those calls to consistency, but Jesus invites us to this kind of consideration by making a comparison, verse 9, between the way you and I would give to someone and the way that God gives. Which of you, or which among you, you could say, which among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? The wording here is very focused on qualitative comparison. What sort of man among you, what sort of person do you think it would be? What kind of person would you be if your son asked for bread and you give him a stone? This isn't just some random person who's coming up and asking you for a helping hand. It specifically pictures... The person, perhaps, that you have the greatest and, and most sort of uh, natural longing and connection to want to help your son or your daughter. And all of this, very similar to what Jesus has already told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, to ask God to give us this day our daily bread. He's kind of asking for uh, this request for basic and daily needs. Who among you wouldn't respond to something like that. What sort of person would you be when someone you dearly love is asking you for something as basic as this? Who or what kind of person would deviously give them something so hurtful? If you're a parent, you know that's unthinkable. You already give so many things 
You give without even being asked. You're constantly thinking about the care and protection and blessing of your children. It's on your mind all the time. And you know that if you're a parent. You find it almost unspeakable joy to give things to your children. That's the assumption really behind this question. The assumption is that you already give good things, that you want to give good things. In fact, there are kind of two assumptions here. The first is that you want to give good things to your children. And the second is that you are not purely good yourself. You see that in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. See, he already assumes that you're giving good things to your children. But he also points out that you yourself are not purely good. See, there's an assumption of human fallenness. There's an assumption of human sinfulness. He's not saying that you are the cruelest of persons. You're not saying that you are the most negligent of fathers. It's not the point of this passage. He's not saying that, you know, you are wicked and cruel and worse than every other parent. He's talking about human fathers in general, and he's building on the idea that all human fathers are fallen in the sense that we have these corrupted natures. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of the fact that you, as a human father or human mother, express your selfishness, you express your, your insensitivity, you express your sort of uh, your cruelty even in some ways, in all kinds of situations, and yet when, you, when it comes to your own children, you have the capacity to give good things. You have the desire to give good things. In comparison to other fathers, you might be marginally better than others, but in comparison to God, you could never stand up. You would be declared, in light of God's character, to be evil. That's what the Scripture says about every person born in this world. You are far from perfect. Psalm 53, the fool says in his own heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They commit abominable injustice. There's no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them turns aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. That's God's observation. That's God's assessment. He looks down from heaven and what he sees is his creation rebelling against him, spurning his law, turning away from his grace, rejecting his sovereignty, defaming his name. All of this is bound up in what the Scripture calls the depravity of man or the corruption of man. Not suggesting 
that every person is as bad as they could be, but acknowledging that every person is tainted by sin. And by the way, it taints every part of you. Sin affects your material body so that it is going through the process of decay and ultimate death. Sin affects your emotions. Sin affects your thinking and your mind. Sin affects your speech. It affects your relationships. It affects your work. It affects everything. And so we talk about this depravity being complete, not in the sense that that you are as bad as you could be, but in the sense that even in your best efforts, it is touched and tainted by sin. Sin permeates your entire life. So that even in your parenting, even in those relationships where you have the most natural tendency towards love, you aren't the parent that you ought to be. You aren't as loving, you aren't as consistent, you aren't as selfless. You know, God says that He has created us in His image. But humanity fell into sin and it corrupted every part of our being. Still, however, the Scripture says that we retain the image of God, albeit now itself corrupted. We still retain the image of God, but it is an image that needs to be restored because it has been affected by sin. But because of that image, men and women maintain a desire for perfection and goodness. That's part of the image of God in us. That's one of the reasons why we were created. Our inner person yearns for that. It yearns to escape our corruption and escape our imperfections. It yearns to want to be good and want to be perfect. We want to be better as husbands and wives. We want to be better as citizens. We want to be better as workers. Another way to say this is we've been created with a conscience or we've had the law of God written on our hearts. So in spite of the fact that we're affected by sin in every way, we still naturally yearn for what is good and yet we can't reach it on our own. And so all of this explains how you as fathers and mothers can be evil and yet still do good things. The fact that you do good things doesn't wipe away the fact that you're fallen. The fact that you love at certain times and certain people doesn't do away with the fact that you have fallen short of God's glory and His commandments. You might have close relationships. You might have loving relationships. You might do good things sometimes, but it doesn't make you a good person. It just reflects the fact that you have the image of God within you, but it's still an image that which is marred, it's still an image which is fallen, and it's still an image that needs to be redeemed. You need forgiveness. You need the cleansing of your heart and mind. You need the wiping away of all of those sinful acts and all of those motives and all of those negligent things that you've done throughout your life. You might have good relationships, but you're not a good person, according to Scripture. And yet, 
even with all of those tainted motives, imperfect acts, all that brokenness and fallenness, even in spite of all that, you do good deeds. You can be loving. You can give to some people. You can do all of that. But Jesus wants you to consider this. Here you are with all of that sin, which has permeated every part of your being and tainted every aspect of your life. And yet you are at times caring, at times loving, and certainly towards those that you dearly love like your children, you wouldn't think about giving them a stone if they asked for bread. You wouldn't think about giving them a snake if they asked for a fish. You understand not just basic decency, but you understand deep love in spite of your imperfections. How much more, he says, how much more your God who doesn't have to battle daily with impure and defiled tendencies. He doesn't have to battle with that kind of inherent selfishness. He is pure and undefiled goodness. He is pure and undefiled love. His character is undiluted generosity. That's who he is. And you, if you receive good gifts from your earthly fathers, how much more will your gifts from your heavenly father flow because of his character? So the point here is that our heavenly father who is not evil, who has no limits in terms of his character, and by the way, no limits in terms of his knowledge or his understanding, his understanding about what gifts would be best, Surely in his nature of goodness and his perfect understanding and his perfection of character, he not only can, but he will give good gifts to his children. Of course, the key word here is good. God doesn't give a stone when you ask for bread. He doesn't give a fish when you ask for a snake. In ancient Israel, they would bake their bread in these round loaves and and from a distance, they might look very much like the rounded stones you'd find on the ground anywhere around Israel. Or if you're a child reaching into a basket to grab a fish for your lunch, your initial touch may not uh, make you realize it's a snake. Both of them have scales. They may initially feel very similar. But God wouldn't be so devious His character would never allow such things. So even in your frustration and even in your struggles, you begin to think of God as less than what He is. In fact, you begin to think of God as less than what you are. You actually think, well, I would would give if somebody was in need. I would give to my own kids. 
You're in a season of struggle. You're in a season of trial. And you can give in to the temptation that God is somehow deviously taking delight in tricking you. So you almost don't even want to hope in God because you think He's just going to disappoint you. All of that is fueled by distortions in your view of God's character. Whether those distortions come from the corruption of your own imagination or whether they come from the coordinated message of Satan that is fueled by the world or funneled by the world, I should say. You have allowed yourself to think impure and sinful thoughts about God. Because the truth is, God only gives good gifts. James 1.16, do not be deceived. Every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James says, don't be deceived. God only gives good gifts. He only gives good gifts. He doesn't give harmful, hurtful, bad gifts, which by implication must mean that when you're asking for a bad gift, a harmful gift, God wouldn't give that either. We don't even always know what to ask for. Or as the Scripture says, sometimes we ask with wrong motives. But God wouldn't even allow our own corruption to do damage by giving us what we ask for when we're asking for something that's destructive to us. Which, by the way, is why the Scripture often couples the call to confidence in prayer with the reminder of the need to align our prayers with the will of God. James, or excuse me, 1 John 5, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that He hears us in whatever we, excuse me, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of, ask of Him. Here's the same kind of confidence. You know, you ought to have the confidence that when you ask of God, He is eager to give. He is generous. He is kind. He is good. And if you're asking for things which He knows are good, in other words, they align with His will and His character, if He knows that you're asking for things that are good, He's going to give them. So your job then, according to Jesus, is to keep asking, to keep knocking, to keep seeking. Because the reality is, this is about so much more than just material things. Asking for our daily bread. This is about the struggles that so often can knock us off course. The struggle with unrighteousness. The struggle with what God's called you to be. The struggle with sin that doesn't go away. And you begin to doubt whether God is really eager to help. Keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. 
In fact, in the parallel passage, Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now you hear that and you think, well, well, I'm not asking for the Holy Spirit. I'm asking for God to get me out of this situation or get me out of this dilemma. But you're listening to that the wrong way. God's not putting a limit on the way He's going to answer your prayer. Some people think that. They think that that's sort of, in Matthew, it's very broad. He'll give you good things. We get to Luke and it's kind of just, well, He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. This is actually a statement of the depth of God's answer. The Holy Spirit, who we sometimes call the paraclete, which basically means the one who comes alongside, he's called in John the comforter. He's also called the helper. Because that, that idea of paraclete, the word in Greek, coming alongside of one, it carries both the idea of helping and the idea of comforting. Because as we all know, it is very meaningful for us if we have a need for someone not just to meet the need, but to come alongside of us and say, I'm going to not only meet the need, but I'm going to be here with you all along the way. If there's anything else that comes up, I'm not departing. I'm going to walk beside you. I'm going to check in on you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to encourage you. The implication is that God's commitment is not only in supplying our need, but His commitment is even deeper in His love and His care and His presence. It's a commitment of relationship. Jesus says, when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the helper to be with you. And so if your son asks for a loaf of bread, he doesn't want you to just chunk a, uh, a loaf at him in some sort of cold-hearted and aloof way. He wants that as a part of the relationship that he has with you. Well, Jesus is simply saying that God isn't just committed to giving you some sort of impersonal exchange of requests for needs. He's saying that God will give you himself, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with you, and he will be your helper, and he will be your guide, and he will be your comforter. He not only is listening to you, he's going to walk beside you and he will not abandon you. So you cannot give up on God's character. You cannot give in to the temptation to doubt. You cannot give in to the solicitations of the enemy or succumb to his questions of God's character. Or the pride to somehow think that you would be more generous to someone in your situation than God would be with you. His invitation in is for you to ponder God's character. 
He gives what is good. He gives what is best. And he only gives those kinds of gifts. So your job is to trust. You are, as the scripture says, you're already a victor. You're already a conqueror. God has already promised to you the victory. He's already committed himself to be your helper and your provider. Your job then is to, is to immerse your mind in the goodness of God's character and in light of that, keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking because those who do that, they will be answered and God will open the door to you. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. And if you're here this morning visiting with us, let me remind you that when we dismiss in just a moment down the hall to the right, we have a visitor reception. I encourage you, uh, come by. Uh, I'd love to be able to meet you personally and uh, be able to share with you a little bit more about our church and hear how the Lord might be working in your life. Father, we're grateful for this reminder, for this word. We pray that you would indeed Help us to take your character in mind every day with worshipful reflection. May we be reminded that there's none like you. So good, so generous, so loving. And that you'll hear our prayers as we keep asking. Lord, we look forward to the day of praise, the day of testimony with each of those answered prayers because we fully expect you to answer according to your goodness and according to your will. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.